Fair Use Notice. This channel may make use of copyrighted material, the use of which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This constitutes a fair use of any such copyrighted material as provided for in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Law. In accordance with Title 17 U.S.C. Section 107, the material on this channel is offered is offered publicly and without profit to the public users of the internet for comment and nonprofit educational and informational purposes. Copyright disclaimer under Section 107 of the Copyright Act 1976, allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarships, and research. Fair use is a use permitted. No copyrights is are claimed. The content is broadcast for study, research, and educational purposes. The broadcaster gains no profit from broadcasted content, so it falls under fair use guidelines, www.copyright.gov. And we'll be right back. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of my fabulous sponsors or advertisers. Any content provided by our bloggers or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. This disclaimer was provided by DisclaimerTemplate.com. Hello, my lovely loyal listeners. I tried, y'all. I did. I tried to say it without laughing, but I love saying it. Anyway, today is Wednesday, March the 30th, 2022. We only have one day left in March of 2022, and it will never happen again. Now, what we're going to do today is continue driving down the freaking rabbit hole because I can't get out of this freaking thing. It's so deep. I went so far down the rabbit hole, you guys. Oh my God, I cannot even see the the exit. I don't see any. I'll listen. I don't see nothing except these street signs that we're about to drive down. So buckle up. This episode of Just Miss Rose is going to be one hour. We already know it's an hour. It's going to be one hour driving down the friggin' rabbit hole. Get your popcorn. Get your. Did you go to the bathroom? I hope you went to the bathroom because we're not stopping for the next hour. We are going to be driving. We are not pulling over there at rest stop. We're not going to any of these stores. I don't care what stores. I don't care what we pass along the road. I'm not backing up. I'm going straight forward because we're rapidly approaching April and we have got to get down the road on this rabbit hole. But keep in mind, this rabbit hole is deep, deep. But 
We're going to keep on driving because we got a full tank of gas. I got my foot on the gas. And we'll be right back after this brief pause for the cause. And we're going to start our exciting article for the day. Thank you for listening. All right, my lovely, loyal listeners, we are on the website entrepreneur.com. And this article is entitled The Truth About People Who Play Devil's Advocate. It was written by Daniel DiPiazza on February 18th, 20. 17. Opinions expressed by entrepreneur contributors are their own. One thing that bothers me is the concept of playing devil's advocate. Oftentimes, if we come up with a good idea, friends, family, and co-workers will look to find reasons why it won't work. They'll look for reasons why we might fail, but they'll frame it in the guise of trying to help us. I was just playing devil's advocate, but that's not helpful at all. For one, Looking for reasons why something won't work isn't a good formula for actually making them work. It's not encouraging. It just spreads bad vibes. But more than anything, it's easy. Easy for those who are not in the arena to judge the warrior. Easier for those sitting on the sidelines to speculate while they hide from taking action themselves. If someone you care about is starting a project that they love, don't look for reasons why it won't work. Flood them with reasons why it will. And here's the key. If the idea doesn't work, that's fine too. The object of the game in life is to take action. We can't control outcomes, but we can always control our actions. So, encourage them to keep trying until they get better results. The devil doesn't need any more advocates. He's fine. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. You guys. (laughs) That seems to be the end of that article. Is it? Well, the devil doesn't need any more advocates. He's fine. And then it says, Entrepreneurs, Editors, Picks. 44 Profitable Ideas to Make Extra Money on the Side. Has nothing to do with what we're talking about. And at that point, I'm going to stop. Because I'm not playing the devil's advocate. 
but I'm talking about the devil's advocate all day today. And because this is a one-hour program, that leaves me leeway to read as many articles as necessary, no matter how long or short. So we want to thank Daniel D. Piazza for his article, The Truth About People Who Play Devil's Advocate. And I want to just, I'm scrolling the screen just to make sure that that's it. And that is it. And we'll be right back with another exciting article, hopefully a little bit longer, because this is a one-hour program. Did I tell you I love you for listening? I love you for listening. It's time for Dictionary Definition of the Day. Today's Dictionary Definition Word of the Day is Devil's Advocate. It's a noun, a person who expresses a contentious opinion in order to provoke debate or test the strength of the opposing arguments. Devil's Advocate. And we'll be right back. All right, my lovely loyal listeners, we are back and we are on the website, Medium. Dot com. And this article written by Anaya Agaral, October 13, 2019, is entitled, Here's How You Can Deal with a Devil's Advocate and Also Be a Better One When You Don That Hat. Fantastic idea, my boss said, but let me just play devil's advocate for a moment. My stomach turned as he invoked the protective power of devil's advocate, whereby while sounding innocent, he will shred my idea to pieces, and indeed he did. It got me thinking, though, how often does the devil, the devil's advocate help in achieving better outcomes, and how can we work better with them without feeling stripped of our confidence? Turns out, the name itself dates back to the 17th century, when the Roman Catholic Church created an office known as the the Advocatus Diaboli I, who made a case against the canonization sainthood of a candidate to uncover any character flaws or misrepresentation 
of the evidence favoring canonization. The thinking behind it? How could a claim be trusted if it hadn't been assiduously tested? Many years later, the thinking still holds merit. However, I have increasingly noticed that being disagreeable is often confused with being intelligent. As a result, more and more of us are experiencing the disappointment that comes along with having our ideas obliterated to dust at work, among friends, and sometimes even by our partners. So, how can you deal with devil advocates around us better? So, how can we deal with devil's advocates around us better, you might ask. Here is how. Cheat sheet to dealing with devil's advocates. For starters, it helps to know that devil's advocates come in two forms. This way you will know which type you're dealing with the next time you encounter one. One, the healthy contratrians. I call them by this name because they are the good, kind, the the ones you might even want to cultivate and have on your team. They pressure test your assumptions, your way of thinking, and address any risks so that the discussion can lead to better outcomes. Number two, the real devils. This variety wants to argue for change for change's sake. Being disagreeable and coming up with logical counter-arguments gives them an intellectual high. The debate with them can often lead to delays and non-value-adding additions to projects and ideas. With the first kind, it is really about you knowing your content in and out so that you can address legitimate concerns. At the same time, you must listen when they speak and listen without formulating your response in parallel. If the listening reveals areas which you were blindsided by, you should be open to collaborating and taking some of those inputs into consideration. The key here is to know that these people want to drive a better outcome from the discussion, which is a win-win for all. They are merely doing so by pressure testing 
What could go wrong with the path you are suggesting? It's really the second kind that can be a pain to deal with. Good news is that there are ways and means by which you can deal with them without tearing your head apart. Know that such people exist. Just having this awareness was greatly empowering for me. Once I was mentally prepared that I could run into a real devil in any way of my me- in any of my meetings, it didn't throw me off anymore. Rather, I found myself preparing my meeting materials in such a way that I kept some buffer time to put myself in the shoes of such a person and preempt some of the counter-arguments that I might receive on my point of view. Keep the ammunition ready. Often, such people will simply try to get under your skin by casting doubt upon the veracity of your statements. In such cases, facts slash numbers always speak more than opinions. Thinking about some of the most needle-moving assumptions that you are using to pitch your ideal and having statistics and facts that can wow the audience can go a long way in clearing any air of doubt created by these people. Maintain a calm conscience. The real devils pounce more if they even get a whiff that you are crumbling under the security. The, um, excuse me. Maintain a calm. Maintain a calm countenance. The real devils pounce more if they even get a whiff that you are crumbling under the scrutiny. It becomes extremely important to continue showing a confident stance. Becoming, I'm, excuse me, become, become comfortable with buying time when a question throws you off. Reiterate the question. Appreciate that it's a thoughtful one to buy time and then come up with a logical response. This way, you will both be able to tackle the attack and not appear bruised. And we'll be right back after this brief pause.
It's time for a bonus dictionary definition word of the day. Today's dictionary definition bonus word brought to you by Oxford Languages is contentious. It's an adjective causing or likely to cause an argument, controversial, involved, involving heated argument of a person, given to arguing or provoking argument, contentious, and we'll be right back. Use their strategy on them. In certain situations where you find yourself at a loss of words, adopt an attack versus a defense strategy. Drop the ball in their court and ask them to convince you about why they feel a certain way. What has led them to believe that it won't pan out in the way you are suggesting? In case they have strong supporting points, it will help you see exactly what you have to defend against. In case they do not, they will have no choice but to actually concede to your way of thinking. Bring the focus back to the real issue. A common tactic adopted by such people is to lead the conversation astray and bring up lesser important issues or nitpick on small details. In such situations, you have to steer the ship back in the right direction by asking, is this what we have really gathered to discuss? Is this really part of our larger vision? Closing thoughts. Ultimately, Closing thoughts. Ultimately, the intent behind writing my thoughts on this matter is not merely to suggest constructive ways in which we can deal with the real devils, but to also make a plea to those of us who find ourselves playing that role. The role of naysayers is critical in driving innovation and challenging the status quo. However, it is imperative that more of us don that hat with this intent in mind and not with the intent to appear intellectual by being disagreeable. And that, you guys, is the end of that article from medium.com. Here's how you can deal with the devil's advocate and also be a better one when you don that hat. And that was by Anyana Agrawal. Agrawal. And we will be right back with another exciting article. I love you for listening. All right, my lovely loyal listeners, we are back and we are on the website behavioralscientist.org. And this article is entitled, Stop Playing Devil's Advocate and Other Advice for Better Decision-Making by Ilaria Schultz, July 10th, 2018. 
We often use the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid, as a way of pointing out when someone is being drawn into an idea without thinking critically about it. They've lost or are about to lose their sense of perspective. Perhaps it's the latest medical fad or diet. Maybe it's the most recent political spend or even a new religion. Rarely do we think about the tragic story behind the expression. In 1978, more than 900 people died after drinking a Kool-Aid-like concoction containing sedatives and cyanide. These people were members of a cult founded by James Jones, known as the People's Temple. For many years, the members of the People's Temple lived in a small settlement in northern Guyana called Jonestown. By creating this isolated settlement, Jones was able to ensure that his beliefs were constantly being reinforced and that any dissenters were punished. Although this arrangement was effective for the most part, Jones knew that it would not last forever. In November of 1978, United States Congressman Leo Ryan arrived in Jonestown and offered to take anyone who wished to leave back to the U.S., knowing that dissent by even just a few members would open the floodgates and break their control. Jones arranged for the congressman and five of his companions to be shot and then ordered all of his followers to drink the Kool-Aid, which resulted in what is now known as the Jonestown's Massacre. Jones knew the power of dissent. In her book, In Defense of Troublemakers, Charlene Nemeth unravels the science of dissent. She reviews research along with a number of case studies, including the Jonestown's massacre, to expose the dangers of conformity and makes a case for speaking up against the majority. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Nemeth to learn about the meaning of true dissent, why playing devil's advocate doesn't work, and how a diversity of demographics doesn't necessarily equal a diversity of opinions. We also spoke about how to encourage debate both in the workplace and on a personal level. Alira Schultz, you write 12 Angry Men without Henry Fonda's character would have been 11 men who rushed to the judgment that the defendant was guilty. What is the difference between a group with a true dissenter and a group where everyone is in agreement? Charlene Nemeth. You've touched on the heart of the book. I think it's worth remembering that not just in experimental research, but in real life, juries, you can predict, almost 90% of the time. The final verdict by simply knowing the majority position on the first ballot. This shows the enormous power of the majority. The critical thing is that the majority's power lies in their unanimity. Even original experimental studies show that if you get one person challenging that majority, even if that person is wrong, a challenge to the majority position actually liberates people. 
In your book, you argue that playing devil's advocate is nowhere near as effective as having a true dissenter. How can groups make effective decisions when everyone is in agreement? When someone truly believes something different than you do, it has a stimulating quality for your own thinking. When you're role-playing, you can't argue with the person who's pretending, if you will. People are under the illusion that since the information is the same, the two conversations should be equivalent. They put a devil's advocate in because they think you're going to get somebody who gets you to think about the alternative and you're not going to get mad at each other. What they underestimate is that devil's advocates don't make you think about the alternative decision. Playing devil's advocate does not have the stimulating quality one hopes for. I don't think it has to do with the information that devil, devil's advocates state. I think it has to do with the fact that they believe something very differently than you do, and that challenge is sort of like a smack on the head, if you will. That gets you to start to rethink the issue, and so there's power in that. One of the crucial distinctions that you make in your book is the difference between diversity of demographics and the diversity of perspective. Could you unpack the relationship between these two kinds of diversity? Diversity of demographics can be important for all kinds of reasons, but what helps decision making is when there is a diversity of perspective. And that may or may not be the same thing as diversity of category, namely of a demographic. The example I use in the book is that if you look at who the cabinet members are of any given president, you'll find a mix of of demographics. You'll find male and female, and you'll find Caucasian and African American and Asian American, etc. Yet, They don't have a diversity of perspective. They're not chosen for that. They're chosen for their ideologic similarity and loyalty. The rhetoric is one thing, but what you see is that presidents pick people who are going to be on their team. So they're actually creating homogeneity of perspective, even if they've got heterogeneity in the demographics. Diversity of demographics can be important for all kinds of reasons, but what helps decision-making is when there is a diversity of perspective. You include a very interesting example from the investment firm Finwich Capital. Could you describe their decision-making process and how it has influenced the company's performance? Basically, what they do is that even after they decide they've done their due diligence and they know what stock they want to buy, they then insist on what they call a contra-met memo. This is not just let's play devil's advocate and chat about it for 10 minutes. It's spending several days writing pages from the perspective of what that decision, of why that decision is wrong. You have to be very thoughtful about it, and you have to stand up to being questioned about it, so it's not a light exercise. 
The idea is that if you seriously think that you're wrong and go through that whole process, you stimulate your own thinking in a way that is more divergent. Namely, you start really recognizing the downside as well as the upside. It's like a clone of authentic dissent. It's not having an actual dissenter in there, but it's about as close as you could get if you're trying to embed these principles into your decision making. There has been a great deal of social and political controversy lately. What advice do you have for individuals who may not agree with their friends and family, but are still looking to move the conversation forward in a productive manner rather than shutting it down? There's a reason why people tell you to avoid discussions about politics and religion, and it's because it very quickly moves to anger rather than dialogue. I think you have to pick your time and your issues. You can start out by saying, you know, look, I think we really differ on this issue and we don't have to talk about it, but I really would like to know how you think about it and I'd like to share with you my thoughts. And if they say, well, if you're on the other side, get out of my house, I'd probably get out of the house. I don't think anybody's got a magic blueprint for being able to, to have a civilized discussion with someone who really thoroughly disagrees with you. Unless you sense that there is at least some curiosity about what it is you believe. Elera Schultz is an editorial assistant at Behavioral Scientist. She studies psychology at Wesleyan University. And that, you guys, is the conclusion of uh, that article, Stop Playing Devil's Advocate and Other Advice for Better Decision Making. And we'll be right back with yet another exciting article. Did I tell you I love you for listening? All right, you guys, we are back, my lovely loyal listeners. We are on shesaid.com. And this article is entitled 13 Ways to Know If Your Friends Are Actually Real Friends. This was written by Elizabeth Laura Nelson on October 31st, 2018. Half of your friends might not even like you. The other day on my Facebook feed, one of my friends posted a status update asking if we were really her friends. She linked to an article from the New York Times that suggested half of our friends might not really be our friends at all. That is, we might think someone is our friend, but when asked, they might not actually claim us as a friend. Worse, they might not even like us. The article was pegged to a scientific study that showed just 53% reciprocity in friendships. That means more than half our so-called friends might not actually consider us friends, or at least might not say we're as close to them as we think we are. Ouch. In her post, my friend offered to private message anyone who wanted to 
reassurance that we were really her friends. Of course, she was kidding. But underneath that, aren't we all just a little bit anxious now about whether our friends really like us or not? So, just in case you ever find yourself wondering, here are 13 ways to know for sure that your friends are really your friends and that they really do like you. Number one, they want to hang out with you. We all have that one person in our lives who we're constantly planning to have a drink with and never do. If someone is always too busy to get together or constantly flakes on you, flakes out on you, you're probably not really friends. Try acquaintances or possibly frenemies. Number two, they make you feel good about yourself. You know that friend who always makes you feel kind of bad when you're hanging out or right after? They might be queens of the backhand compliment or maybe just Debbie Downers. But whatever the case, you feel a little sad and sick after seeing these folks. Friends, not so much. The ones who leave you feeling like you're a pretty awesome person to be around, those are stairs. Number three, they're honest with you, but not too honest. It's nice to know your friends get out the way thing. It's nice to know your friends will tell it to you straight, but there's no need for brutal truth telling. Even between the best of friends, a real friend cares about your feelings enough to cushion the hardest of truths. Number four, they never say no offense, but Honestly, if anyone ever says this to you, don't waste your time with them ever again, ever. That kind of mean girl business should be left back in middle school. <laughs> uh, hold on a second. Oh, I'm getting an old lady hot flash and I've got to take this jacket off. Okay, okay here we go. Number four. They never say no offense. Oh, I said that one already. Number five, they don't play devil's advocate. I have one friend who does this, and whenever he does this, I call him out on it. Of course, it's a dude. Playing devil's advocate is just an excuse to be nasty at worst, pessimistic at best. Neither has a place in your friendships. Number six, They don't flake on plans. Sure, everyone gets busy. Excuse me. Sure, everyone gets busy sometimes and needs to change plans, especially if they suffer from anxiety or are a single parent or have some other extenuating circumstance. But if someone is constantly flaking, it's time to reevaluate whether they're really your friend. Number seven, they speak well of you to others. Doesn't it feel great when someone tells you they heard something nice about you? A good friend will brag about you to other people. If they really like you, they won't want to keep it to themselves. They'll tell the world how awesome you are. Number eight, they don't gossip about you. 
On the other hand, there's no worse feeling than hearing that someone said something nasty about you. Gossip always gets back to the person who was talked about in some form or another. Always. If you're a real friend, you just don't do it. And if someone is your real friend, they won't do it to you either. Number nine, they keep your secrets. A true friend can be trusted with your biggest and scariest secrets. And not only will they keep those secrets, they'll still like you no matter what skeletons they know you have hiding out in your closet. Number 10. They're happy to do different things together. The friend who only wants to have a drink after work. The friend who's only available to talk on the phone when her husband is out of town. The friend who only texts you when you have an extra concert ticket. These are unlikely to be real friends. True friends show up for cocktails and dinner, but they also help you move, babysit your kids, celebrate your new job, and come to your dad's funeral. Number 11. You've met their friends. You Sorry about that, you guys. Number 11. You've met their family and other friends. When someone is an important part of your life, you bring them into your whole life. You don't exclude them from certain activities or events or keep them from meeting the other people in your life. If you call someone a friend, but you've never met any of their other friends or family members, chances are that friendship is not reciprocal. Number 12, you know you can count on them. Good friends are there for you in good times and bad, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse. And the very best of girlfriends still make you a priority even after they're married, have babies, or take on career responsibilities. Number 13. When it comes right down to it, okay, no, I'm sorry about that, you guys. Number 13, you like being with them. When it comes right down to it, do you actually like being with this person? Do they make you laugh and lift you up when you're down? Do you feel comfortable with them like you can be yourself? Then you're probably friends. Trust your gut. It knows who your friends really are. And Elizabeth Laura Nelson about the author. Elizabeth lives in Brooklyn with two daughters, occasional mice, and innumerable to-do lists. She runs a nine-minute mile, bakes a mean chocolate chip cookie, and can always be persuaded to sing at a karaoke bar. Follow her on Twitter. And we'd like to thank SheSaid.com for this wonderful article, 13 Ways to Know If Your Friends Are Actually Real Friends. And we'll be right back with yet another exciting article. (laughs) You guys, I can't help it. You know, I pick these things randomly from the internet. And I'm not looking at how long any of them are. So we're doing a bunch of short ones today. But who knows? I might stumble upon a long one next. Who knows? Because this show is an entire hour and I'm going to fill the whole hour. Did I tell you I love you for listening? You're fabulous. I'll be right back.
All right, my lovely loyal listeners, we are back and we are on the website mentalhelp.net. And this article is entitled Four Well-Intentioned Behaviors That Can Damage a Relationship. Sally Connolly, LCSWLMFT, has been a therapist for over 30 years, specializing in work with couples, families, and relationships. She has expertise with clients both present in the room as well as online through email, phone, and chat therapy. Okay? And that's who's written by you guys. Sally Connolly, LCSWLMFT contributor. All right. All right. Being a good spouse is not always easy, and most people really want to do their best as a spouse. There are, however, some things that spouses do to try to be helpful that can actually make things worse. Check over this list and see if you fall into any of these bad habits. Number one, offering advice. When your spouse comes to you with a problem, is it often so easy to figure out how they can solve it, right? Wrong! Offering advice often gives the message that you are not really listening or that you don't care. It is much better to listen and be a sounding board or a shoulder to cry on rather than offering solutions. After you have a good understanding of the problem, then you might be able to make some suggestions, but not unless you get a clear request or indication that your input is desired. Playing the devil's advocate falls into this same category. As a good spouse, you want to be on your partner's side rather than letting them know what is wrong with their argument. Unless they ask you, excuse me, unless they ask for you to give them the arguments that they may encounter, don't offer it. Your relationship is the most important thing to consider here. Believe in your choice of a mate. You marry the smart person and he or she will eventually figure things out. They just need someone who is on their side. Number two, being too positive. Positivity is important in any relationship. Looking at the goodness and what is right is so much better than dwelling on the negative and what is missing. Wanting to get your spouse from a negative place by encouraging looking on the bright side or forgetting about upsetting things is not always helpful, however. Sometimes you have to deal with the sad, disappointed, frustrated, or angry feelings. If you rush to change a mood, you risk the possibility that your partner will feel that his or her needs and feelings have been discounted. You also might risk the chance to experience intimacy and learn from your partner and the relationship. Hear your partner out before trying to change the mood or tone. Ask a lot of questions that get him or her to talk more with you about whatever is bothering them. Number three, protecting by not sharing complaints or 
important information. The temptation might be to ignore problems rather than to deal with them. After all, what someone does not know can't hurt them, right? Not so. Secrets can be very destructive to a marriage. Hiding things from bills and finances to affairs can damage the trust and integrity of a relationship. Not being open about important things that bother you can also lead to distance in a relationship. Keeping the peace does not always lead to a healthier relationship. Number four. Putting your partner's needs higher than your own and not taking good care of yourself. There are, there are a lot of women and men in relationships that devote significant energy to making their spouse and their families happy. While this feels like the right thing to do so much of the time, the danger of burnout is high. Those who do a lot in a relationship also often find that their expectations for reciprocation are not met, which leads to hurt and disappointment. You know what they say on airplanes, don't you? Put on your own oxygen mask before putting one on someone else's. Wait a minute. You know what they say on airplanes, don't you? Put on your own oxygen mask before putting one on someone else's. The same is true in relationships. Take care of your own physical and mental health and you will be a much better partner. And guess what, guys? That is the end of that article on mentalhelp.net. And that was four well-intentioned behaviors that can damage your relationship. And you know the drill. We'll be right back. I love you for listening. All right, you guys, this is the last article for this episode. And we are on the website dailytitan.com. And this article is entitled Devil's Advocate, Both Sides of the Friend Zone Need to Communicate. This was written by Cody Gion, September 13th, 2017. The Friend Zone a phrase popularized by the sitcom Friends, is often thought of as something to laugh about. But what most don't realize is that friend zoning can actually bring a lot of unintentional harm to the recipients. According to the online Cambridge Dictionary, being in the friend zone is the state of being friends with someone when you would prefer a romantic or sexual relationship with them. While it is true that not everyone is obligated to like one another and that everyone is entitled to their own feelings, being put into the friend zone isn't as simple as saying, I only see you as a friend. It's important that the person who is doing the friend zoning does so in a sincere manner, aiming to preserve the friendship. The person who is friend zoned 
needs to understand that a friendship is all the other person is seeking. Those who are friend-zoned should realize that only following one's agenda while disregarding the other's wants is selfish. If both parties are still left feeling unfulfilled, then there can be numerous negative effects from something that should be easily avoidable. The friend zone has a negative impact on college students, especially psychologically, said Assistant Professor of Human Communication Studies, Tara, oh my God, I cannot pronounce this lady's name. Okay, I'm not even going to try. It's S-U-W-I-N-Y-A-T-T-I-C-H-A-I-P-O-R-N. I'm not even going to try that. Anyway, being rejected causes negative psychological influences. For example, lower self-esteem, negative emotions, and distraction. A lack of communication between two parties may be the root cause of this issue. Since all relationships are a two-way street, an increase in communication and empathy from both parties is the solution. 19-year-old business major Madison Smith was in a relationship that lacked communication from the other person. The relationship was going on for about a month and a half. I thought, oh, we're dating. Cool. I like this guy. And I even started to talk to my parents about him, Smith said. After being advised by her friends to seek out his true intentions, Smith brought up the talk. It was just a super awkward conversation, but basically he said, he just said, no, we're just friends. Smith said he lived a floor above me in the dorms. So I saw him multiple times after that. And I always saw him with a bunch of girls. Smith said she lingered on the thought of not being enough especially after seeing him later with other girls too. I thought I didn't meet his expectation or I wasn't good enough to date him, Smith said. Some people don't realize that the friend zone can be a form of social rejection, which can actually cause a hurt similar to physical pain. A 2011 study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences demonstrated that rejection and physical pain are similar not only in that they are both distressing, they share a common somatosensory representation as well. People need to realize that someone may actually get badly hurt from the friend zone. And those who see it as a joke should be a bit more considerate, especially if it's one of their friends. Another another person's feelings cannot be controlled. It's true. But how those feelings are communicated can be. It is hard to prevent because attraction is very natural. And sometimes your attraction can be to someone in line at Starbucks, someone at the gym, and sometimes it's your friend. There is no way to prevent it, uh, Tara said. 
The way to deal with the situation the best is for the person who is in the friend zone to directly communicate to the other person that they have romantic feelings for just say it. Having this talk about relationships among friends is natural and both parties need to be open to talking about it. Sure, it may a bit it may be a bit awkward at first, but there's always a chance the bond between two friends can grow stronger. You are not alone, Tara said. And the best way to go about dealing with this is for both people from both angles to communicate directly and empathetically. All right, that, you guys, is the end of that article. And it was entitled, Devil's Advocate. Both sides of the friend zone need to communicate by Cody Gion. And that, my lovely, lo- my lovely loyal listeners, is the conclusion of this episode of Just Miss Rose. Now, you guys know the rules. Don't let anybody take you off your square. Remember... You are the only you that there is, and you are doing a fabulous job of doing you. All right? I love you so much, my lovely loyal listeners. I love you for listening. And I will see you on the next episode of Just Miss Rose. And please support my sister podcast as the massage table turns. We'll talk to you next time. Mwah.